<laughs> yeah, definitely the rule of thumb, the, the small um, uh, the small decisions is mostly intuitive, right? But it also depends that you are, because I believe the intuition is actually built on experience, right? You don't get intuition out of nowhere. Your intuition becomes more precise and more correct with, with the experience. on this episode this is your host khushi khare and you are listening to the women's stories the only indian podcast where i bring extraordinary stories of unconventional business women ngos and other non-profit initiatives often face the problem to find volunteers to keep the show running adila starkova and her friends identified this problem and decided to bridge this gap Adila is the co-founder of a platform called Chezuba that aims to help NGOs to get corporate volunteers who are experts in their domains. Feel free to check out our guest profile from the link provided in the podcast description. Now, let us hear the backstory of building Chezuba from Adila. So, you have an extremely fascinating cultural background. Can you please tell our audience a bit about your cultural background and the places you have stayed so far? And what was the influencing force of finally uh, deciding to work in India? Sure. Um, so in terms of my cultural background, I think it's a little bit uh, less interesting than it seems. So <laughs> because uh, I'm originally from Slovakia, which is a little country in, in Central Europe. Uh, population of our country is smaller than Hyderabad. There are only five millions of us. <laughs> and uh, but I think what the question really is that how I end up, uh, you know, studying Chinese, living in China, in Taiwan, and then uh, starting a startup in, in India. Uh, so I think uh, what is interesting about my, my background is that um, when I was little, I started to dance. And eventually the dancing took me places because I have joined a folk dance group uh, here in Slovakia. And since it was in the early 90s, uh, you know, before Slovakia was a part of a, um, a social bloc. Uh, um, so at that time, uh, we couldn't travel. I mean, before 90s, you couldn't travel. So after revolution, uh, it was such a huge, you know, um, everybody uh, wanted to just go abroad. It, it was a big thing that, uh, you know, my parents couldn't travel. So at that time, when I joined the dancing group, we had a lot of opportunities to go to different places for uh, folklore festivals. Um, and I was just in, um, in my 13, 14 years old, and we started to travel really far. So at that time, I went to Taiwan for a one-month-long festival that was a great experience. And then I also went to India and so on in different places in, in Europe as well. 
So I think that's where it started. That uh, I really loved to explore different cultures. I met a lot of different people because those festivals were really huge and you could meet people from all over the world. So I think that was where I realized that's something that I'm really interested in. And that's why after I finished my high school, I was deciding what to study. And I decided to do something very different from <laughs> my peers. And I decided to study Sinology, which is a, a basically study about China. So it's not just a language, but also cultural studies. So during my master's, I've been two years in China. Uh, then I came back to Slovakia and eventually I decided after five years working here that it, it, it just, you know, the foreign bug was, was itching me again. So I went to Taiwan to study my second master's and I ended up also working over there. And that's where I met my co-founder, current co-founder Sukhendra. Uh, we became friends. He was my first Indian friend. So that was also, for me, very exciting. I could learn a little bit about culture, about his background. And, and eventually, when he was setting up um, his company in 2017, I was already, uh, he was already back in India, and I was still in Taiwan. But he called me, and he was discussing his ideation. And, and that's why, I mean, Probably because I was so adventurous and I wasn't really afraid to to go to foreign countries because I've been uh, outside since since little. Uh, I made that huge leap and decided to eventually come to India, even though it wasn't that very straightforward decision, I have to say. But uh, I think that the ideation of the company and that it's a social impact venture um, eventually made me uh, decided to come. So that's how I ended up in India. <laughs> great. That might have been a great journey, experiencing culture of so many different uh, countries, so many places. I mean, it, it also helps you to build as a person. Yes, definitely. I think it shaped how I am, what I am uh, right now. So we'll definitely tell any future parents <laughs> if they have chance to send their kids abroad, just do it no matter whether it's East or West. It just builds their personality, I believe. Okay. So how would you explain the responsibilities of a product manager to young minds? What skills are favorable to become one? Yeah, that's that's a very huge question, I have to say. And uh, I think it really depends on uh, the company where you are a product manager. Uh, by that, I mean, okay, is it a startup? Is it early stage startup? Um, is it an MNC? Um, how big is the company, what is the stage of the company, what kind of product they have, and so on. Um, so I, I can't go really in, into the details, but in general, how product management is explained is that the product manager sits um, on the intersection of user experience, tech, and business. So eventually you have to be jack of all trades and you have to understand a little bit, decent amount of everything, uh, a little bit of tech, a little bit of business and user experience. Um, but what I think is very important, um, at least what I have noticed when we were hiring our first product manager in the company is that a lot of uh, budding product managers perceive that, okay, I love to solve problems. So I, I'm the good fit and I would, like to put the question differently that you actually have to uh, be curious about the problem first uh, then coming to solutions so i think curiosity natural curiosity is very important for a product manager 
um, because you should not jump into conclusions or solutions which are actually not solving the real problem. Um, so I would say that the product manager is someone who is uh, building a solution uh, for a problem for the users um, to kind of uh, brought uh, certain very specific things what the product manager does from my own experience, which is very broad because I was a product manager um, only in a startup, right? I don't have the experience in the MNC, uh, but um, therefore I have probably uh, vast experiences as, as a product manager that uh, when you are in a big company, uh, you have the, the responsibilities are quite narrow. Um, so basically, you're building a solution for uh, for the users, right? So you have to be aware of what the user wants, what what their what their problems are. So you have to have a very good understanding of the market, of user experience. Um, you have to know the business behind it. Okay, what the company, how the company is making profits, and you have to design a vision for the product, right? Eventually, then it comes to the daily task that um okay how do you make it live so how do you execute so you have to build a roadmap uh, and then small chunks of how you actually make it live that means that you have to build features uh design features and and manage the engineering team to bring that ideation to life so most of the work of uh the product manager is aligning different stakeholders to be on the same page because you have to talk to uh basically all the team members in the in in the team right whether it's business whether it's operations or, or your engineers so you have to be kind of in the intersection so you have to have very good communication skills and at the same time you have to prioritize uh very very crucial uh, responsibility of a product manager is some people would love it saying no all the time basically <laughs> because you can't say yes to to all the ideas that are thrown at you right so but i think the most important part is that you have to understand your market your users the competition and so on and in terms of the skills i uh, you know again there could be a huge list because you are a jack of all trades uh, but probably I would like to put it in three buckets of, of sort of soft and hard skills. And first of all, I think the most important part is the communication part. You have to be a master of communication uh, because you have to talk to different stakeholders. And eventually I was also doing user experience uh, research. That means I was talking to users directly. So I was building the interviews, questions and so on. And because our our users are very, very uh, diverse uh, set of people, I would say I was able to talk to, you know, founders of nonprofits, but at the same time, very high level professionals in MNCs who are volunteering for these nonprofits. So you have to have those communication styles that you are able to talk to anyone and be very clear in your communication. So there is no misunderstanding. Uh, the second bucket, I would say it's staying focused, uh, which is very important. And I mentioned that before that you have to be focused on the problem. There could be ample ways of different solutions, but if you get the problem wrong, <laughs> then the solution will not solve the problem. Uh, and it might get really difficult to stay focused uh, once you start to work as a product manager because there are really different um, 
forces behind your decisions that could be what the co-founders want i was one of the co-founders which was it sounds like a little bit easier but actually i had to persuade also my co-founders right um so uh there could be different forces of what the markets wants or what is viable technical solution and what the business um is actually striving for so you have to be really focused on okay what we are trying to solve and how we are solving it um, and the last thing I would say is uh, being organized, um, because if you, if you are all over the place with so many different things that you do, it, it can get really, really rough. And I think for me, it really helped that I had that experience from my previous job, uh, which was in, in the government that I was really organized and I was documenting everything. So when you are doing a lot of experiments, then uh, after a couple of times, you might, you might go in a loop, right? If you don't document it, you'll forget that, okay, we actually did that experiment and it didn't work. And why it didn't work? You, if you have all the data at place and you, were, and you know where, where to find them, that's really important. So I think um, that's really important that uh, you're really organized, you know, where you have, uh, um, all the all the documentation and, and experiments so yeah that 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 was a little bit uh broader question so so i tried I to explain understand that that's indeed a complicated job but i think it is rewarding if a person do have uh, appropriate managerial skills uh, how do you manage a team of engineers without a formal tech background how much understanding about the technology is a product manager expected to have that's a very good question. <laughs> and, um, you know, there, there are a lot of uh, articles or, or different opinions on, okay, can uh, a non-tech background person become a product manager? And I think really it can, right? It, it's possible nowadays. But it really depends also on the company, on the team, and on the responsibilities that, uh, that are on you. So some of the companies really require the technical background. I was lucky that um, I didn't have to have like really strong technical background. And in fact, I had zero. <laughs> so when I when I came to Chizuba, it was really a whiteboard and it was really tough, right? I didn't understand what the engineers are talking about, right? When they were explaining the backend, frontend databases and so on. So I quickly understand that in for order for me to, to actually build something, I have to understand what they're talking about. Um, so there are different approaches how I try to educate myself on being a little bit more tech savvy. That means there are tons of tons of articles and videos that you can learn by yourself, but it can be a little bit overwhelming at the beginning. So I basically learned as uh, as I needed to. So whatever I didn't understand, I just you know try to understand it uh, and because i was there was so many other things right as a co-founder i just tried to be very focused on okay i need to understand this concept and then i just made a research and i understood it right so i didn't have like a, a educational plan that was all i have to learn i just learned as as, as was required but i think what really helps was um to observe my engineers when they were talking and trying to understand what they were talking about and we had a lot of also uh, i would say casual conversations right so if i wanted to get the explanation from their side i would just ask them 
I was very humble and there was nothing to to hide that I don't understand those terms and they were really sweet. I have to say that I've been really lucky to working with great engineers who are really uh, uh, happy to explain any terms. Uh, and they also, it was for them, it was it was good communication uh, exercise, I would say, uh, to explain complex terms to a non-tech non background person. Uh, so I think how or how to approach this problem if you are a non-tech person is to really try to uh, understand those terms that you come across and, and you don't understand. Talk to your engineers. Don't be afraid to be humble and ask. They will be very happy to explain, I believe. Um, the other thing is that a lot of people are saying that you have to, you should uh, learn at least one coding language that, that really helps um to at least understand you, you don't need to code or, or be proficient in it but just to understand the complexity um so i just learned which is which is very basic to to uh sql basically sql queries i know how to query data from a database and i think that gave me at least understanding how a coding language looks like um and i can just get my data what whatever i wanted before asking the engineers and lastly, I think what really helps was that I was a tester in our company, right? So I was uh, doing the QA testing. So uh, at that time, you realize, okay, if there is some bug, how will the engineer fix it? And what all actually it is connected to? And that gives you a little bit better understanding of the technical parts of the product. So I think the text, the, the testing and the fixing of the bugs really helped me to to understand the uh, the technical aspect of our product as well. Uh, so could you recall the germination of idea behind Tazuba? Uh, sure. Um, so to put it in in kind of a uh, in perspective, um, I think we didn't really. Um, go far from our original idea, but there were definitely uh, alterations. So when my co-founder, one of my co-founders, Sukrenda, uh, called me at the time when I was mentioning in 2017, we were talking about an impact platform uh, because he was the president of ISIN back, back in the days at, at the university and he also traveled, but because of volunteering. And uh, what I think um, he really, imagine was that okay we are connecting uh people from different countries to non-profits to different countries and we are connecting the world there are so many engineers in india and probably africa don't have that many engineers so they can help them building website and so on so that was our original idea his original idea to be precise and what i really liked about this was that skill based aspect of volunteering uh, because at that time, I was always interested in psychology. And at that time, I was actually looking for a volunteering opportunity in psychology. But since I don't have the degree, I mean, what can I do? So I felt like, okay, maybe I can volunteer somewhere uh, in, in mental health um, nonprofit. And I, I can learn, some, uh, learn along the way But I would like to do it or something. But there were no opportunities that I could find. There were, there were all that you just travel to the country and then you, I don't know, teach kids, teach kids English. And it was not something that I was interested in. So when we're discussing, I think that's where we kind of connected. 
uh, our desires or imagination of better world. <laughs> and so, so the idea, uh, the original idea was that okay, we build a platform for nonprofits and and uh, volunteers. It will be all online. People don't have to travel. There are no finances involved uh, for people to travel, and the nonprofit will get talent to their uh, to their uh, team. But eventually, you know, uh, the truth is what we noticed in 2018, because we started like really global, usually uh, what is advised when you start a startup, okay, you have to start very niche and in some small space, but we just did the opposite. <laughs> I remember that my other co-founder, Jagan, was just calling Brazilian NGOs uh, at night, uh, trying to convince them to come on the platform and, and really the initial days we had uh, nonprofits all over the world, uh, so to say. Uh, so that's that's how we started. But eventually, in 2018, we realized that it's it's much more complex to connect people from <laughs> from different countries on on working on some project. Besides that, we had like a very clear understanding that they have to speak English, but there's so much more to it, right? Culture, background, time zones, understanding uh, communication gaps, and so on. Uh, so we decided to focus on India uh, eventually because we were actually very surprised that there were so many young people really willing to volunteer in India. Um, and also, also older generation, but I think most of our volunteers in the initial days were in their early 20s, between 20 to 30, I would say. Uh, we had also some people who were already retired and wanted to share their expertise and so on. So in 2019, we really focused on the Indian market. We were building our uh, community. Um, but then COVID happened. And, and um, during COVID, we had like a huge demands for volunteering um, because people couldn't go uh, uh, physical volunteer, right? It was not possible anymore. And we, we were almost just, just the, the only possibility where, where people could find online volunteering opportunities in that, uh, uh, in that vast range of different projects. And at that time during COVID, what also happened was that there were a lot of corporates starting to approach us to, you know, we don't know how to engage our employees because they're all locked in their homes. Nobody can go anywhere. Our regular volunteering programs are kind of halted. And we were in that space where we had built already some credibility and expertise. Uh, expertise. So uh, at this time, we realized there is a potential to work with corporates and build their online volunteering programs. Um, and eventually, in late um, 2020, we pivoted to a, a corporate volunteering platform. So we were started to also adjust our uh, platform to to be ready to accept uh, the corporates. So basically, uh, building SaaS uh, from late 2020. So that's how the ideation kind of shifted from okay, there is a marketplace for everyone to volunteer all over the world, and then we are uh, basically what we are building now is is a corporate offering where um, employees of a corporate can volunteer for nonprofits, and we are uh, behind the software but also the operations we are looking uh, we are building the programs for them customized for them 
Uh, I do have a curiosity question regarding to this answer. Like, how do you filter corporates and people who are willing to volunteer, uh, plus the people who are willing to take this services on Plazuba? Like, how do you ensure you have the best talent on the platform and you have uh, valid people, like not scam or fake people, mm, just mm. generating leads there? Yeah, yeah. So, so this again a very vast question, uh, but uh, it also went from ideation to ideation, right? So when we started the platform, it was open to everyone, basically, right? But eventually, we realized that um, not everyone will come with an intent to the platform, so we have to kind of uh, uh, how to say secure the platform in a way that people will choose the right person to work with and. Um, that's that's where the tricky part comes in, because at the same time we don't want to restrict it to people to volunteer, right? Um, and if you want to scale a certain business, that you can do a lot of things manually. Um, that's not scalable. So uh, basically, for each volunteer who is who is coming on Chizuba, when I'm talking about the open platform. Uh, you have to build your profile, right? So you have to spend some time to put your resume or LinkedIn profile over there. You have to answer certain questions. And then when you are applying for the project, there are another set of questions um, that we um, kind of try to gauge the intent of the volunteer. And for the nonprofit, we are doing it at the same, uh, at this time, um, we have we have the complete team who is um, sort of searching and screening the nonprofits that are on our platform. Um, so um, there is there is sort of a validation of course of the documentation, the due diligence part, which which I don't need to explain. But um, what basically happens as of now is that we build the open platform, which is still available for everyone, right? For any nonprofit or any volunteer to just volunteer. But then we kind of uh, cherry pick those nonprofits which already had experience from our, I would say, regular volunteers on the platform. So there is a feedback form after each project, right? So we know how the nonprofit and volunteer actually enjoyed the collaboration. So after each project, there is a feedback form of several questions. So we have a metric uh, that we can kind of gauge it. Okay, this nonprofit is. You know, they are also giving a good volunteering experience to uh, to the volunteers who, who like to help them. So we kind of uh, cherry pick those nonprofits and move them to our corporate, I would say, the corporate wing. And then we know that, okay, this is a, this is a good nonprofit that uh, they have a space and time and technical capabilities, communication capabilities to work with, you know, uh, with, uh, with our corporate clients. So, and on the corporate side, right, there is, um, I don't think uh, there is any, any screening really needed because we are, talk, we are talking about uh, professionals, right? So the problem over there is the other problem is how to really incite uh, as many people as possible to be part of the volunteering program. So I hope I answered your question. Yeah, apart from this, like, uh, like the uh, only corporate engineers could volunteer over Chazuba, or people from different industries could volunteer. Oh, uh, definitely, definitely not just engineers. Uh, that that will be too niche. Uh, uh, so when we are talking about digital or online skills, imagine that could be uh, anything that you can do online, right? And now uh, I think the most uh, that I mean most prevalent skill 
uh, in our project is content writing um because that's that's a very vast skill and, and you can help help a lot uh, the nonprofit to i don't know revamp the website the content on the website or you can help to write in projects and so on so the content writing anybody with good content writing skills also audio video um either creation or or editing right there could be even hr professionals who help them to revamp their hr policies or or financial auditing so anything anything that is possible to do online so you don't need to go to the nonprofit it's that's that's what we facilitate yeah i guess that's a great initiative because a lot of people in my community approach to me like uh, you know we are just starting out with copywriting and content writing could you please mm. help us so it's a great way to build your resume if, like definitely and, and yeah. you'll get great clients yes exactly so because you have a real project to work on right especially for for people who are just starting uh, i think it's a great um uh, possibility of how to build your resume as you said definitely. and i guess it could, um, how do you ensure taking the right decision quickly as a product manager in chesuba is there a process that you would recommend to young people who might be listening to this podcast uh, sure so yeah decision making is the toughest part and i think it in any profession but especially in product management you do tons of decisions every day um and i would like to say probably two things one is when you say okay how do you make sure you make right decisions so uh and quickly right so what is right and what is quick <laughs> so <laughs> i would say that i don't think i always made the right decisions you have to just acknowledge it right it's impossible especially when you start but i think what is important um is to learn from your mistakes so be very mindful about uh, what you are doing and if you are making some decision be very humble and saying okay this is this was a wrong decision and i know why right so i think that's one thing about making right choices i don't think it's possible to be always right uh and second what is what is fast right so when in in decision making i would I would put it in, in a sim simple way that there are two types of decisions. Maybe some of my colleagues will have a little bit bigger metrics, but I would I would simplify. But there are quick decisions and and um, uh, small decisions and big decisions, right? Those small decisions you are doing every day, and at the time you don't really have time to do any analysis and, and a, a huge research. You have to know, okay, this is a small decision. There is a low level risk and so on. It's it's small, and then there is a big decision. And for those big decisions, you should make special time. So for those small decisions, I I just use rule of rule of thumb, right? So it just depends on the company culture, how much you know about your own users, which is really important to build that knowledge. Uh, of course, about user experience, uh, practices, and so on. So, if engineers ask me, okay, should this be green or red, or uh, what is the name of the button, and so on, I should be able to make those decisions very fast because I don't want to roadblock anyone, and you don't want to spend time on these things. Then, when it comes to the big decisions, that's that's much more nuanced, and you have to get more precise, and you have to uh, most 
most of the time the decisions that you are making you have to explain to everyone else why you made those decisions right so at that time uh you don't really use rule of thumb out of no nowhere you have to have your own frameworks and and analysis so you have to gather all the data you have to know what you are looking for in those data and how you make the rational decisions. So there are a lot of different frameworks that product managers use. I won't be going into the details, uh, but one of those could be that, okay, I want to, I have different options, like, I don't know which market we will tap into next. And I have different options. And then I rate those options on different metrics, right? Like, okay, how big is the market? Are there any competitors, blah, blah, blah. And then you just make your own rating. Uh, and you know, okay, which market uh, is, is the best market to, to tap into, just like an example, right? So you have to have a very analytical approach, very standardized approach. So eventually when you make those decisions, uh, you can also explain your decisions to other stakeholders or team members, and uh, you make sure that you are actually on the same page, which, which is really important with those big decisions, like what is what is the uh roadmap for next quarter or what should we focus on our strategy on so and in your experience um what is the role of intuition how much uh, credit you will give to your intuition <laughs> yeah definitely the role of thumb the the small um uh, the small decisions is mostly intuitive right but it also depends that you are because I believe the intuition is actually built on experience, right? You don't get intuition out of nowhere. Your intuition becomes more precise and more correct with, with the experience. So I think intuition is also important. Of course, you have to have your numbers for certain things, uh, but um, it really depends when to use the intuition and when not to use the intuition because there are a lot of cognitive biases that we have and so on um, that I'm also studying a little bit that you have to know that, okay, what is my intuition? Shall I, how can I reuse it if it's not valuable and when, when should I use it? Got it. Uh, so also I'm curious to know the profit model of Shazuza as it's a volunteering platform. So how uh, do Chazuba brings money in the business? Yeah, sure, sure. So that comes back to the ideation. Uh, when we started, it, it was a marketplace. So there were only two type of users, uh, nonprofits and volunteers. And in very, very initial days, we even um, were charging. So uh, the, the first business model that my, my co-founder came up with was that, okay, we'll charge both places of the marketplace and that will be our revenue, initial revenue. And then eventually when the, the platform will be really huge, there could be different revenue streams, right? They had alternate revenue streams. So it, it was never intended to be only volunteering platform. To be very honest with you, we had much bigger vision and we still have much bigger vision for it. Uh, but that was the initial business model. Uh, but of course, I mean, um, you have some, uh, you have some hypothesis and then market proves you wrong but eventually we end up to uh, to charge only nonprofits uh annual subscription fee so every nonprofit who uh, could benefit from our platform uh, was paying us just an annual subscription fee which was much more better deal for them to get as many projects as they wish uh, to get done right so i don't know a website would cost them 
I just imagine, I don't know, 30,000 30, rupees and, and the subscription would be 10,000. And besides the website, they can get um, different content writing services and so on. So it was a good deal for them, right? So that's, that was our initial business model in those early days. But eventually COVID hit, as I mentioned, and uh, and it was almost impossible to, to continue charging on profits. So during COVID, we made our service for free. Uh, and at that time, uh, late 2019, we had our very first corporate volunteering program, which we were just kind of exploring the possibility with, with Data Group, Data Sustainability Group. Um, and I think that was, that was one of um, the great leaps that we made that we decided to experiment at that time, because eventually that became our business model. But Data. Uh, uh, basically wanted to scale their volunteering program. They were doing volunteering programs for years, I think six, seven years, and they wanted to make it bigger. And we were basically their agency. Um, so, and then during COVID, I think that it, it kind of naturally, uh, we naturally realized that, okay, there is a, there is a huge opportunity um, to scale our uh, volunteering platform for corporate, but also to change our business model completely because charging non-profits would not really take us much far, to be very honest, but the fee was still small to run the whole business. So we eventually wanted to have different revenue streams, but that would take much more time. So now uh, our business model is based on uh, on the fees from corporates because we are, um, we are giving them the software and we are also giving them the hardware, so to say. So that means the nonprofits and, and the operation system and everything. Um, so for now, the, the platform that you can see if you if you go to chesuba.net is an open platform. It's all completely free for everyone. But then we're having the corporate platforms, which are only specific to the corporate. They have their own domains, which is used only by their employees. And that's what we charge for, basically. Great. I am amazed by the way a lot of like tweaks and turns have happened from 2017 to 2020. And of course, uh, yes. that, that's how a business works. I, you need to change at the speed of life. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And you have to be open-minded uh, to those opportunities that actually are, are knocking on your door, right? If, if you are very stubborn, then you might just send it up and closing the business. You have to just, you know, listen, have your eyes and ears open, I would say. Uh, so what uh, now we will not be talking about Chesubap, you know, and te technical things. So you have been in India and I know your stories about Indian food and Indian culture and Indian, <laughs> what, like, you know, what, uh, what do you face when you visited India for the first time? So you know how the patriarchy system is the, in the roots in India. So what do you wish more Indian women uh, should do change, should do to change the patriarchal structure of a society? Yeah, that's a very really interesting question, I, and I've been asked this a couple of times already, and <laughs> I always laugh because I feel like, okay, I, I am this white person living in India, what I have to say <laughs> about what Indian women should do, um, but um, I can only probably give some of my observations or, or what I feel it, it's happening, and I think it's just a very natural development in every country. Right. So even though you maybe now see that, OK, Europe is very open minded, not patriarchal, we are, you know, there are no women issues, but actually it wasn't always like that. Right. So every country has its own development. Uh, um, but I would probably say two things uh, regarding um, what what Indian women uh, could do. And as the saying goes, that's a cliche that if you want to change the world, you have to start from yourself. 
right? So I think many, uh, many times it's really enough if you think for yourself and you are very mindful about your decisions and then more women will follow after you, right? So I think it's very important for Indian women to realize that times are changing and they have a lot of capabilities. They, they have education, uh, you know, much, much more, uh, more options to, to kind of, uh, than their parents had, right? So you have to realize that, that the generation gap is really huge in India, I feel, and a lot of, I think because you have so much immense respect for your parents and, and for elderly, which I respect, but one also have to realize that your parents are not uh, living your life and they were living in a really different society. And I can see it even when I'm talking about my parents, right? What kind of decisions they made and what kind of profession was important at that time. And that, it, that also reflects on your decisions as a woman. And so I would say you have to, the, the advice to Indian women is to start from yourself and be aware of your capabilities, of your smartness, of your possibilities, and don't be afraid to voice it out. Don't be afraid to voice out your opinions. And uh, I think everything comes, uh, everything will change with economic development eventually, because the patriarchal system is based on the notion that women don't have uh, finances to take care of themselves, but that's not true anymore. If women are working, then they can take care of themselves and men will realize that eventually. <laughs> um, so I think we have to be kind of patient and just push those uh, boundaries step by steps and eventually change will happen in India as well. Uh, because I think that's an inevitable. Um, and I'm not a very huge fan of these, um, how should I put it, uh, cultural notion of patriarchal system because I don't believe it, that uh, it's something rooted in culture. I think it's very economical decisions. Uh, it's based on economical development. Uh, so I, I would just say that just continue to do whatever you are doing. I think there's so many incredible Indian women who are starting different initiatives and I think your initiative is also wonderful. And, and then other women will realize that it's possible and will we'll, we'll just follow. Um, but one has to also, you know, with, with, with freedom, there is also responsibility, right? So one, once you have freedom, when you can stand behind your decisions and, and you are making money for yourself, uh, there's also a responsibility that, okay, I'm not dependent on anyone else. And maybe a lot of women are not ready for that yet. And maybe they, they don't feel strong enough or I don't know, to, to be independent. That's fine. I think one has to realize what uh, what what is their uh, stance or or their capabilities. But if if you feel that okay, I, I can stand for myself, just just continue doing that. <laughs> I am also coming from a little bit, I would say, patriarchal family, even though it was not that strong as in India, of course. But I think what helped me to to see things differently was actually that traveling and observing and looking at other people's lives and you realize that okay it doesn't need to be that way and is nothing related to culture right you can make your own decisions you can make your life whatever you wish to be right what is comfortable for you so i think uh that really helps to to be curious about other people's lives <laughs> so i believe that you are a spiritual person so could you please confirm this statement before i ask my question <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Uh, may I have one question for you? Why do you think I'm a spiritual person? <laughs> uh, um, because I've observed your posts and the way you like, maybe, you know, mm. put the ambience around you in a frame. 
that's kind of okay. spiritual to me and that touched me on a deeper go okay okay interesting yeah so so please uh, i think i am partially a spiritual person but not too much right i think it's very very subjective what one would call spiritual and maybe what i call spiritual for other people will be not spiritual uh, but i think there is a, there is an instance of spirituality <laughs> that i have in me so you can continue with your question <laughs> thank you so i would love to know your journey of learning to maintain the balance in the chaos yeah that's that's a very nice question but um how to answer it um i would probably go back to uh you know all my different experiences because also my if you say so spiritual journey uh is connected to that right because i was raised in a christian family uh my father likes to say that he was a military christian <laughs> which is which is a joke basically because during uh socialism you could not show that uh you couldn't go to church right or anything so once you could do that he was very very open about uh, his beliefs and and so on uh so I, that's how i was raised but then imagine i was studying uh what we call eastern cultures and eastern religions right so i said buddhism taoism Confucianism, and of course, a little bit of Hinduism. I traveled the world, so then I understood that, okay, there are so many different concepts. And how I perceive spirituality and, and maybe in comparison to religion is that, okay, religion is something that you basically show to the external world, okay, which group I belong to and whether I go to church, I go to mosque or whatever. But I think spirituality is something that happens inside, right? Nobody has to see that. And it's something that how you deal with things which... Uh, maybe you don't understand or are difficult or or uh, how you deal with emotions and many people will do a very rational things and many people actually their spirituality helps them to deal with the world so i believe whatever you do no matter whether it's re related to religion or not or uh, if if it helps your inner world uh, i think it's spirituality is very important in that sense and if i have to be very specific about my own journey of spiritualism um i think for me what i i think i'm a very practical person in the sense that i use spiritualism when i need it <laughs> so uh, i would say this way that um when, when i'm really kind of struggling and um you know the rational mind is not really helping certain spiritual practices which really help me to kind of go back to the balance and and, and feel good about the world still despite everything um, so i've been to vipassana meditation when i was in india uh, if you know about it if, if not i will just briefly explain for, for people who don't know about vipassana it's, it's sort of a, a meditation which is not related to any religion it's it's so to say the original meditation practice of buddha um started with goenka in, in myanmar and then i think india has the biggest number of places where you can do vipassana meditation and and you basically do meditation from 4 o'clock until 9 p.m. Uh, 12 days in a row without speaking to anyone. And so it's, it's a very rough experience. I think not everyone would, would be really eager to do that. Uh, but I was kind of in that stage of my life that I feel I have to clean my brain, <laughs> sort of. So I went for the Vipassana meditation. And I have to say that it really changed a lot of my perspectives. It really helped me at the time. Uh, and I don't feel like it was really... I don't know, religion or religious or spiritual, I felt it was very, very practical on how you deal with your own emotions. 
Um, so I found it a very practical meditation technique that really helps to keep balance and have a different perspective on life. And so I continue with meditation sometimes, but not, not that heavy meditator. Um, it, it's just occasionally, I would say, I would like to go back to that. Uh, but I think physical activity really helps, even though maybe some people would not call it a spiritual activity, but for me, yoga or, or dancing or running could be really great spiritual practice because you kind of go into the state where you almost meditate. <laughs> And lastly, I, I think I would like to mention a practice of uh, gratefulness, uh, which I believe is sort of a spiritual practice where I just thank for things that happen to me or the way I am or whatever is around that I'm thankful for. And I think it really, really helps when you, when you feel uh, really down and then you just kind of thank no matter who it is, a universe, a God or Allah, it doesn't really matter who you thank. But I think it's, it really helps to, uh, to look at the world in a more positive uh, perspective. Yeah. yeah. That was a beautiful answer. And I guess South India is more about spiritual learning. We don't have these kind of centers in North. So lastly, a lifelong lesson that you would like to pass on through this podcast episode. Well, let me say, okay. So... What I wanted to say that I would like to end up on a, on a little bit more serious, but maybe also a positive way that when people are asked at the end of their life, what do you regret the more, uh, the most, those things that you have done or those you haven't done? And most of the people would say, well, I regret I haven't done something. Uh, so I think that's the way I would like to live uh, every day. Of course, it's not possible to do that every day, but that's, that's the lesson that I'm trying to keep in my mind that our life is beautiful and, and we should try to experience as much as possible. And I don't want to regret that I haven't tried something or haven't done something because eventually everything is a learning, right? If you fail, it is just um, uh, your first attempt to learn. So I am a lifelong learner and I believe the journey uh, of life is more about learning than really reaching certain goal uh, or nirvana. To live your life the way that you don't regret you haven't done something that you want.